Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. Chess.com recently launched a new way to learn from your games with a feature called Insights. If you visit chess.com slash insights, you can get detailed stats and analysis in any of the time controls you've played and across any time period. What kind of things can you learn? Well, you can learn what time of day do you play your best, morning, afternoon, or night? What part of the game are you strongest or weakest, opening, middle game, or end game? Are you making more or less mistakes than opponents at your level? You can find out all this great info and much more at chess.com slash insights. Welcome to this week's episode. Back by popular demand, today I talk with FIDE master and chess coach Nate Salone. This is Nate's second time on the show. He previously appeared on episode 26 last year, where we discussed his five keys to chess improvement. And that was one of the most listened to episodes that I have on the show. So if you haven't heard that one, I definitely recommend it. This time, Nate and I have some new areas to discuss. First, we talk about his victory this past August at the Alto Chess Tournament, which is one of the very few adults-only OTB classical events. It's held by the Charlotte Chess Center, and uh, I hope to one day go myself. We also chat about what it was like playing well-known commentator and WGM Dina Belenkaya, why he was so successful at this event, and what was different about playing an adults-only event other than not having a ton of kids running around. Then about 22 minutes into the interview, we discuss the subject of positional play for club players. Things like what exactly is positional play? When should you study it as a club player? And how much of your study should be focused on it? The last subject Nate and I talk about is his new chessable course on the one knight f3 ready and why it can give you an advantage over much more common openings like 1e4. Finally, I want to mention that Nate has an email newsletter full of great chess advice that you can subscribe to called Zvishenzug. I read it regularly and it has really helpful insights for improvement. I'll have links to that and his chessable course in the show notes and on my website for this episode. Here's my interview with Nate. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Nate. How are you? Doing good. That's great. I am excited to have you back on the show, uh, both because I'm just happy to speak with you again. I really enjoyed our conversation the first time. Second, the episode that that we did together, the first one we did together, uh, was one of my most listened to episodes that uh, in in the entirety of my podcast history. So, oh, I, I didn't know that. That's great. I had yeah. No idea. Yeah, I think it's uh, maybe even a top five, but at least a top 10 in most listened to episodes of, of all of them. Um, so I know my audience will be excited to hear from you again as well. Yeah, so we got a lot that we want to talk about this time. The first subject I'd love to dive into with you is that you've just come back from an amazing win of your section at the Alto Tournament at the Charlotte Chess Center. Um, how are you feeling, first of all, after such an awesome victory? Um, Great, a, a bit. A bit surreal, you know, the way the tournament went, everything just seemed to kind of break my way in an almost unbelievable way. So it's, it's great to have a good result uh, my, for my first over the board tournament after a long layoff. Um, but it does feel a bit a bit surreal as well. 
Yeah, I imagine for maybe a couple of reasons, like you said, one being, you know, your first tournament after a while. Um, and also, um, I didn't get to see everybody that you played, but I know you played Dina Belenkaya, so there's at least one other chess celebrity there. Um, so I imagine that kind of gave it a different feel perhaps as well. Um, were there other other names that we're familiar with in your section? Um, well, I played I played um, Grandmaster Alonzo Zapata, who's uh, many times Colombian champion, and uh, he's he's also... He famously beat Vichy Anand in six moves once in a, um, okay. in a game where Vichy, Vichy mixed up his prep. Um, I played uh, uh, my my roommate actually for this event, uh, Todd Bryant, who people might know from uh, Twitter as Strong Chess. Oh yeah, um, we played, and uh, I am uh, David Vigorito, who's who's an old friend of mine from Boston. So um, yeah, a lot of familiar faces for me at least. Yeah, did that add to the surreal aspect at all, or did it just make it more um, comfortable? Mm, well, playing Todd was weird because we we were roommates, so we were literally like each sitting on our own queen bed in the hotel room with our laptops out, preparing against each other, like <laughs> trying to outguess the other person. That that was weird. Hiding um, your screen from the other. Yeah, person. I probably if I really leaned back, I I probably could have seen his screen, but that would be pretty dirty. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, especially playing Dina in the final round because, uh, I mean, you know, she's such a, a, a famous chess personality. Um, she was leading by a half point over me and everyone else going into the final round, but but I had the white pieces. So it was absolutely a must win. Hmm. Uh, and also, since I had the white pieces, um, you know, I, I was just using my chessable repertoire for the whole tournament. Uh, so I felt like this was like the ultimate test of the repertoire is, you know, with white much must win situation against, you know, this, <laughs> this sort of very famous glamorous streamer who's also a super strong chess player and seemed to be in really good form. So it was like, it was like somehow the ultimate test of my repertoire. It was, I don't know, I had this feeling that everyone was, everything was coming together like a little too perfectly in a way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I imagine the, the nerves, uh, may have been a factor for you at all, like in terms of just, just feeling it, not that it affected your play per se, but just that, I don't know, you know, that, that seems like a high pressure game. Yeah. I, I think if anything, it helped me that the tournament situation made my task so clear, you know, if, since I was behind by half a point, if I drew the game, I would probably be at best, um, in, well, certainly not in first, but probably in, in, a second in a tie with at least one other player. Whereas if I won very likely clear first. So it's like my task was very, very clear. So it was, um, you know, I had to go all out for the win, no matter how I was feeling for that game. So in a way that made it easier. Right. Right. And, you know, we'll talk more about your, uh, your chessable repertoire for, for the ready, um, more in depth later, but since you mentioned it now, I just wanted to ask a question about it, which is you said it felt, you felt like it was also the ultimate test of your repertoire in that particular game. Do you feel like that opening helped you? Yeah, it actually, so I, I got four whites out of six rounds in this tournament, which is a bit of luck, but, um, you know, I used the, the lines from the chessable repertoire, um, in every game and in the final round against, you know, um, yeah, it worked quite well. She went for, sort of a Slav setup. I used the line um, that was covered in the repertoire. She went for, she went for some trades early on. I think maybe she was angling for a draw because of course a draw would let her 
win the tournament, but uh, it, it led to a position where actually I had, it was, it was a somewhat simplified position with some pieces off the board, but um, I had a lead in development. We each had a wheat pawn in the center, but hers was maybe a little easier for me to attack. And hmm. um, I didn't really play it in the perfect way. Um, the engine actually shows I could have gotten a big advantage, but I was able to to keep um, some pressure up that, that sort of extended even into the end game. So I would say I really can't complain about the result of the opening. I think, um, you know, I was definitely in my prep a bit longer than her and got, and got definitely a good position where I had some pressure. Yeah. I mean, it's such an amazing result, uh, both overall for the tournament and, uh, to, to win against Dina is, uh, like you said, she's a strong player. So not easy at all. You know, I want to talk about your prep for the tournament, but before I dive into more specific questions, uh, Nate, you know, you referenced to me some of the blog posts I, I, or newsletter posts, I should say, uh, that you had written uh, about your preparation for this tournament. And there was one line in there that struck me as uh, particularly, well, I guess, funny now in retrospect. Uh, you said, quote, while I plan to prepare and do my best, given that this will be my first tournament in over a year, I don't have much of a right to expect a superlative result. And then you win your section. <laughs> so uh, just any comments on that, on that quote from you? Well, yeah, you know, I was, I was thinking of something that another guest on your show, uh, uh, Noel Studer, mm-hmm. um, sorry, sorry if I mispronounced Noel's name, but anyways, um, I think he's been on recently and obviously he's really insightful about chess. And one thing that he had said, I, I think in what, I don't know if this was from his course or one of his posts, but basically whenever you go to play in a tournament, you should ask yourself what will make this tournament a success or worthwhile or valuable. Um, even if I don't have a good competitive result, I, I don't know if that's exactly how he put it, but that's the basic idea. And I think that is, is very, you know, correct. And, and a good thing to do because no matter how well you prepare and how hard you try, um, a lot of the results are are not entirely under your control as far as pairings, as far as how well your opponents play, even in, in terms of how well you play, because we all know um, sometimes you're in good form. Sometimes you're in bad form. You, you can do some things to kind of control that like sleeping well and eating well, but um, you know, so a lot of it's pretty mysterious. So, so I do think it's really important to think about what, what other things you're getting out of a tournament as, as far as, apart from just winning games or winning rating points, because the reality is that is not always going to happen no matter what you do. Right. Yeah, that is a phenomenal question. I, I think I even uh, I joked, because we had sort of scheduled this podcast before we knew the results. So I, so I had said, um, right. well, I'll, come, I'll, I'll either tell everyone why my result, you know, why my preparation was so smart and why everyone should copy me or why it was a complete disaster and why everyone should do the opposite. But, I, you know, I don't know. I'll tell you after the tournament which one we're going to do. So <laughs> obviously, in the event, the, the result was good. But, um, you know, there were many moments that, that could have gone differently. Like against uh, Zapata, I kind of messed, you know, I got a great position from the opening that I really messed up the middle game. We got to an end game where that, that should have been drawn, but he was the one who was pressing. But uh, he was very low on the clock and blundered upon and uh, and you know, I got, I got the win. I got the full point from that game or against Vigorito. Um, we went for a long theoretical line of the semi-slav 
And on the very last move where he had to retreat his king in one of two directions, and I thought he would go to G1, and um, there was a force draw that I had seen. So, you know, I was pretty much ready to shake hands and agree to a draw, but he went to E1 into the center, um, which was just losing. So, you know, there were there were half points and full points that I got in this tournament that were, um, it could easily have gone very differently. So since you were aware of Noel's question about, you know, what do I want to get out of this tournament, even if it doesn't go well? Uh, how did you answer that question for yourself going into Alto? Yeah, I had a, a, a few goals for myself. Um, one, I was really influenced by my friend and um, my co-author on on my book, uh, Eugene Perlstein. We, we wrote this Evaluate Like a Grandmaster book together. Uh, and he recently also made a, his return to, to over-the-board chess after a long break. Um also fantastically successful. He won two tournaments back to back. Um, but what really inspired me was, wasn't so much that he won, but that he was saying, you know, I think playing in these tournaments is really going to help me be a better coach because he had all these interesting games, um, really interesting decisions, some of which he made well, some spots where his thought process broke down and, you know, and he made some mistakes, um, but really interesting material for his students. And also I think just sort of part of being a chess coach is, you know, chess knowledge, helping make someone make a study plan, all that sort of stuff. But there's also a big empathy component of just understanding what it's like to play chess under a lot of pressure. And uh, it's just hard to remember what it feels like to play in a chess tournament. You know, Mm -hmm. obviously over the course of my life, I've played a lot of tournaments, but just that level of stress and pressure, if you're not in touch with the experience of doing that, it's, it's, hard to really get the sense of what it exactly feels like. Um, so I kind of was, was taking a page from, from Eugene and, I, and I've seen other coaches say this. I've seen um, Jakob Augard has, has been back out there playing um, some tournaments. Um, Srinath uh, Narayan, um, who's uh, an, another fantastic coach, um, you know, has talked about being able to actually relax a bit more in tournaments now that, He's, he's not really doing it for himself. He's just doing it kind of for fun and, and, and to get some experiences that enrich his coaching. So I was influenced by all of that. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Nate. So I liken it a little bit to my own experience in this and not as a chess coach. Uh, but I think, I don't know if you know, but some of my listeners know that um, previously I, I had run a fitness business, was a fitness coach for 10 years. And, um, you know, obviously I needed to work out all the time, you know, because people want to see you walk the walk, so to speak. But in doing fitness training for myself constantly and regularly, I always felt like I could do it from a perspective of trying to pick up little subtleties that might help my clients. And so I, I felt like I wouldn't have gotten some of those little insights along the way if I wasn't always immersed in it. So just to kind of bring it back to what we're talking about, I don't know if you feel the same way now, having come back from this tournament, uh, that maybe you picked up a couple of insights uh, that might help your students uh, that perhaps you wouldn't have had had you not gone. Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of the opening, for sure, because I had all these lines I prepared, but whenever you play something over the board, all these... um, questions uh, uh pop into your head that seem you know that feel much more pressing than when you're at home preparing uh so i'm definitely going to go back and review those games and develop my knowledge especially of the the middle game plans 
Um, so, so I think that'll, that'll definitely, and I'm going to like do game recap videos, stuff like that. So I think that'll definitely be helpful for anyone who's using these repertoires, but there's also more general stuff like, um, in round five, um, I was pressing in, uh, in a better position, but, but somehow I just couldn't get comfortable, even though I knew my position was better. And, uh, and I had a talk advantage as well, but I just allowed a draw. So that, that was probably one of my low points, uh, uh, from the tournament. You know, I kind of regretted letting my opponent off the hook a bit too easily there. Going into the tournament, you had a preparation plan, you worked on it, but it got somewhat disrupted by, uh, life and, you know, just, just having a young child totally makes sense. Um, so your best estimate and understanding of, you know, why you think you won your section, which it didn't seem like you were expecting to do going into it. So what do you attribute to that? Mm, well, I do think within the time I, I had, I, I'm pretty happy with my decisions of like, of what to prioritize, even, even though I didn't end up getting to spend as much time total as I would have liked, like I got a functional opening repertoire in the sense that I had all my bases more or less covered. Um, certainly it could have been, you know, my knowledge could have been deeper. And if I keep playing these openings, it will get a lot deeper, even just from analyzing my games. Um, but I was basically ready for, you know, I don't think I had any huge gaps where if my opponent just did something fairly typical, I would have no clue what to do. I had, I had the big bases more or less covered. Uh, I, so the, the the sort of big two things that I did to prepare were that getting my opening repertoire ready and also doing some calculation work in particular with a physical board. So I was setting up um, positions and, and you know, sitting, look, looking at, at the pieces and writing down my answers to try to get the feel of sitting at a board. I think that was helpful for me as well. Um, one other big thing I, I wrote about this in one of my posts is to make peace with whatever preparation you have. Meaning um, for me in this tournament, maybe it wasn't the preparation that I really wanted and, and hoping for. But I think as you're getting into that final week, you really just have to accept that whatever preparation you have is the preparation you have for this tournament. And the, the time to become a better chess player, at least for this tournament, has ended. And it's really time to just accept whatever skills you have and get ready to use those skills to try to do as well as you can in the tournament. Um, so I think I was able to do a pretty good job of that. You know, I was, I came in not really expecting to win, not expecting any particular result, but like feeling quite excited to have the opportunity to play, to see some friends, you know, to have a good time. So yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really going in planning to win the tournament or anything like that, but I was like feeling optimistic and excited for for the trip and the whole experience yeah yeah i was wondering if you might offer or have have to offer maybe just one insight or lesson that you learned from this tournament that you think might help club players and the reason i frame it that way is because i know there's some things obviously that you learned that may only be helpful for someone who's at your level as a titled player but uh yeah just if there's something that you felt maybe a, a little more uh, general or broader in scope that you gained from this one that could help help other people. Hmm. Well, what, when I was doing these um, these calculation exercises, it, I was using this book called um, Universal Chess Training by uh, uh, Miranda's the author. Um, 
Now, as far as puzzle books go, I think there, there are a lot of good ones. Um, you know, the positions, the specific positions you're working on aren't, aren't that important, but this book also had some nice kind of nuggets of wisdom. And, uh, one, one that was really memorable for me in this book was he was talking about this idea of chess culture, which is, which is a term you hear thrown around. And his definition of it is chess culture means you always know what to do after the opening. Um, and I think I, I really like that definition. I think it's, and I think it's a huge part of chess. Uh, when you get out of the opening into that early middle game, do you have a sense of what to do, like where your pieces go, you know, what you're trying to do in the position, because having some kind of blueprint for what you're trying to do, it's so helpful. And it's actually so hard to try to figure out that out from scratch at the moment. And one thing I noticed in this tournament was saw a lot of, a lot of games, a lot of positions, you know, even like very like international masters, grandmasters, where people were, were thinking for a really long time, burning tons of times on the clock, clearly very uncomfortable in really pretty standard positions. Um, and I think that's, that's a huge, that's a huge problem if you don't know those positions, but it's also a huge opportunity if you do have that comfort level. So something that's, I mean, to, as far as that definition of chess culture, to always know what to do after the opening, that's a pretty tall order, but you can at least really focus on knowing what to do after your openings, like in the, in the, um, in the most typical positions or pawn structures that you get from your openings, do you know how to play those middle games as far as where your pieces go, you know, any typical pawn breaks, typical plans for both sides, just really what you're trying to do in the position, having some sort of conceptual framework for thinking about what you're trying to do is so valuable. Um, So that's something I strive for. It's definitely, that's going to definitely be a point of focus for me in reviewing the games. It's not just, oh, I made this move and the computer says 0.5, but I had this different move and it's 1.5 or whatever. But also what's going on in this position? If I had this type of position again, how should I think about it? That's really what I'm striving for when I'm reviewing uh, my games. And I think that's it's maybe something people aren't aware of when they're reviewing their games that you really, you really want to have. Yeah. Do you feel that knowledge comes from studying model games from the openings that you're working on or, or that or maybe a combination of something else? It can. Um, the thing that's tricky about model games is like, if you don't already know it, it's a bit hard to know um, which games are model games. Cause you know, maybe you see Carlson won a game from this position, but it could be he won a model game or it could be he actually did something that doesn't make a ton of sense, but he won the game later because he's Carlson. Uh, so I get it. I, I, I kind of rely more on working with the engine, kind of clicking around, playing out a little against the engine or looking at the engine lines and thinking about them. Um, another thing I want to do... I something I've kind of been meaning to do for a while, but I'm really more motivated to get this set up is to do a little bit more creative work with the engine. Um, Matthew Sadler has some really good ideas from this. So, so there's a few different ideas like something he loves to do is um, set up these, these engine tournaments from key positions from his openings where he's running a bunch of different engines generates all these games. And then you get this, this sample of incredibly high level games and you can kind of see 
what maneuvers they're they're doing. Um, now this is you know this this requires a, a little more technical know how to set up, but there are some interesting techniques that you can use to to use engines in more creative ways to kind of extract this type of understanding. Yeah, yeah. Excellent advice. Love it. So just one other thing I want to talk about with uh, this tournament itself, which was the fact that it was an adults only tournament. And seeing as how the majority of my audience are adult improvers, I thought that'd be uh, kind of interesting to just touch on a little bit. You know, I think it's fantastic, obviously, that the Charlotte Chess Center is holding a tournament like this. I think it's needed in the community. As you said, um, I think you said this, I'm sorry, I've been talking to so many people about chess lately. It's very um, forward-looking, I think, that they're doing this because there's, I think, a lot more adult improvers now in the chess community. But since a lot of us haven't had the chance to go to one of these tournaments, I was wondering if you could speak to that part of the experience, um, maybe how it differs, say, from an all-ages OTB tournament. Yeah, well, I mean, one way is it's probably easier. These kids are tough. Uh, <laughs> that's one difference, although that's that's not honestly why... I, I didn't choose this tournament to um, boost my rating or, or whatever. I really just wanted to have a fun experience where I could hang, you know, get dinner, get some drinks with my friends and, and catch up with some people. Um, so I do think, but it was, it's a bit more relaxed. It's a bit more social. Um, maybe not quite as, as focused exclusively just on the competitive element. Hmm. Um. Yeah, just a, a bit more of a social experience, I would say. Yeah, so I kind of want to just shift topics now and talk about some things that you know you're working on as a uh, chess coach, chess content creator. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned to me was that um, something that you're eyeing towards the future is a course on positional play for post beginners. And when you mentioned that to me, it really it really struck me because. I think this is a very important issue and hot topic for uh, adult improvers. I think briefly, I'll say that I think it's an area of struggle for uh, for adults because we could pick up perhaps more advanced books on positional play and try to make some sense of them. And to some degree, we can. Uh, but at the same time, it's not necessarily uh, the thing that will help us most for our improvement. And I think the challenge is knowing when it's appropriate. And if it is appropriate for us to start studying, you know, based on our skill level, appropriate to start studying some positional play, you know, like what resources, you know, how advanced do we go, that sort of thing. So that's it in a nutshell to me in terms of sort of the challenge that exists for it. And I, and I love that this is something that appeals to you too, because like I say, it's, it's very relevant for us. So, you know, I thought maybe we could just start by kind of just defining some things because I know you know, uh, things can get a little fuzzy for, for people, including myself. So just one point of distinction that I'd like to start with, with you, Nate, is just what's the difference between positional play uh, versus strategy, studying strategy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wish I had a really, a really smart <laughs> answer for this. Um, if I'm being honest, I probably use positional and strategy pretty interchangeably. Um, okay. But, but to try to, I mean, if I was going to try, I would say, um, strategy, I, I think, is a bit more all-encompassing and kind of can can include everything that's happening on the board. For positional play, at least the way I would think about it in this context is positional play is kind of the opposite of doing something. It's what you do when you're doing nothing. And I think <laughs> something a lot of players from the beginner up to, you know, certainly the intermediate level struggle with is 
they want to do a little bit too much. They want every move to threaten something or change the pawn structure or um, <laughs> um, have some kind of big tangible impact on the position. Guilty. Yeah, but positional <laughs> play is how do you how do you just create? So you're not really doing anything. You're just creating a good position. But then, of course, the big question is what is a good position? So it's like understanding how do you arrange your pieces harmoniously? How do you, how do you get set up in a way that is likely to benefit you when the conflict, the real conflict hasn't quite started yet, when you can't foresee exactly the sequence of moves that's going to really decide the game? Is it fair to say it's particularly relevant and maybe even necessary when it's your move, you look at the position and you don't, don't see any, I don't want to say it, not just checks, captures, or threats, but any checks, captures, or threats that should be made. Is that sort of a moment where positional play becomes necessary? Yeah, 100%. And and I've noticed this is a, a scenario where a lot of players get very uncomfortable and often end up kind of shooting themselves in the foot because what often happens is they, they analyze those forcing moves. And they actually analyze correctly that none of them work, but that's kind of the only tool they have in their toolbox and maybe they've been trained by doing quite a lot of puzzles to to expect that that those forcing moves have to be the right ones because when when you do puzzles generally it's it's a forcing win so it, it starts with a forcing move so you'll even see people analyze all the forcing moves determine that they're bad but just like sort of go screw it and play one anyway because they don't know what else to do <laughs> yeah what i mean just a throw out a few examples. Maybe this is too elementary. I don't know, but there are a range of skill levels in my audience here. So um, just some examples of, of what you're looking at when you're focusing on positional play. Yeah. Well, I think the, for me, the easiest starting point is the concept of improving your worst place piece. Um, because I think that's conceptually that that's pretty easy to understand. Everyone can kind of get that idea. If you've got one piece that is doing little to nothing and you can transform it into a piece that's doing a lot that is really, really good for your position. Um, and I also like that that makes it clear that it's, I think in many cases, it's more helpful to think of improving the position than it is to think in terms of planning, because for a lot of people, planning suggests a sort of grand plan where he's like 20 moves long and you do, I do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and then I win the game. And, uh, Old school chess books were sometimes annotated that way, but that's really not the reality of chess very often. Um, Because as soon as you get a few, you know, three or four moves out, what your opponent will do and how the game will develop um, starts to get pretty unpredictable. So it's usually not really realistic to have some incredibly elaborate master plan for how you're going to win the game in the distant future. It's usually (laughs) more about just finding one idea to improve your position executing that and then maybe finding one more idea. And and if you can kind of do that little by little, you can build up a big advantage. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. I love that. So yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about the meaning of post beginner since you use that term. And I think, you know, that, that makes sense to use that term. I know there's not like a hard and fast rule on that. Like, oh, post beginner begins at, uh, a, you know, 1167 rating or something like that, something that exact. But, um, it sounds like you're talking about intermediate players, perhaps, or at least those who are 
I don't know, uh, maybe at about 1200 or so or higher, just kind of past the point where they'll, <laughs> you know, just leave, leave a, a, a piece hanging uh, on priest or something like that, at least kind of sort of pass that in a classical game. Is that kind of what you envisioned or, um, you know, your, your words on what post beginner means to you? Yeah. As far as this project, I'm thinking of it in terms of you're at the point where you're not completely getting your face melted off by tactics because okay. <laughs> like, yeah. so, so, so when I start with a new student, um, that's one a better definition, I, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I often ask is, you know, do you have any goals? What do you, what do you really want to do with chess? And, and something I hear very often is that people say, I want to kind of appreciate chess more deeply, um, both in my own games, but also when I'm, you know, maybe when I'm watching a grandmaster tournament um, online or something, I want to understand what's going on under the surface. And I think a lot of people start out with that goal. But then when they start playing and competing, pretty quickly you realize, okay, all my games are actually just being decided by hanging pieces. So right. I've got to address that. And then if you get past that and you realize, okay, now all my games are being decided by basic tactics like pins and forks. Um, and so if you're motivated enough to win, often you kind of put that deeper strategy on the back burner because it's just very clear from a competitive perspective, that's not what's deciding your games. You have to, first you have to get over this hurdle of hanging pieces, which, which by the way, is often ignored. A lot of chess resources act as though tactics like pins and forks are sort of the level zero. Um, but hanging, you know, not hanging your pieces and taking over, taking your, your opponent's hanging pieces is a huge hurdle that if you're starting as an adult is not that easy because it, you know, it's kind of intuitive. You need to see it instantly without thinking pretty much every time. If, if you're hanging a piece on even 1% of your moves, that is hugely impactful because usually when you do it, it'll, it'll just cause you to lose the game. So right. there's this huge thing you have to get over where you pretty much need to get to the point where you never hang a piece and it's really not that easy to do, but okay. So, you know, so you practice and to the point where you can do that, then you do, you know, then you practice the tactics, you do the tactics books, you do the puzzles, so you get pretty good at tactics. And then for a lot of people at that point, they find they finally come full circle, which they're kind of able to protect themselves tactically well enough. And now they're at a point where they can actually think about their original goal, which was to understand chess on this deeper level. And also they kind of need to because they're playing against opponents who also are, are solid enough tactically. And often at that point, there's this moment of like, wait, how the hell do I beat these guys? Because I've been, I've used to been, been playing in this metagame where it's all about taking pieces, all about tactics. Now I've gotten to a level where I'm not falling for that, but my opponents also aren't falling for that. So how do I actually beat someone who won't beat themselves? Right, right. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Um, and that leads into my next question, which is the subject of tactics, right? Because as a club player, what I hear over and over as for, you know, improvement advice is focus on tactics, almost to the point of like, it seems like implied in, in, in the emphasis on that is that I can't study tactics too much. It seems to be the implication uh, at my level and others at my level. And so uh, to me, the question then arises, okay, so if that if that's true, when and why should I take some time away from that to study positional play strategy instead? Yeah, this is a big question. Um, 
And I'm definitely not saying the tactics aren't important. Tactics are obviously super important. I've, I've kind of, it, it, it's a bit funny because my first book and is, is about evaluation. So sort of like the opposite of tactics. And now I'm sort of pondering this next book that would be about positional chess. So it's like, it may be the case that my first two books are very self-consciously not about tactics. Um, but that's not because tactics aren't important. It's, a, it's, it's more so because tactics are so evidently important that everyone else has already written a million books about them. Right. Um, so tactics are obviously super important. And then it's a little bit bigger question of at be, below an advanced level, do strategy or positional play matter? And if so, how do they matter? And I think they do, but the way they matter is like, it's a little more subtle than how tactics matter. Because if you analyze your games, what you have, you know, of course, what you'll find most of the time is the game was decided by a tactic. If by decided, you mean, you know, where was the moment where the, the evaluation really shifted to where the game was like irrecoverable. And you'll often even find that even if one side was kind of outplaying the other positionally, mm-hmm. mm, if someone got hit by a tactic, it doesn't really matter who was winning the positional battle. The person who saw the tactic will win. So you can go, so you can take that and say, okay, positional play doesn't really matter. It's all tactics. Just study tactics all the time. Right. right. Um, but I do think, I don't think that's quite right. I think it's a little bit short-sighted for a few reasons. Like one is just, is your approach to chess really realistically going to be shuffling your pieces randomly and looking for tactics? I mean, maybe <laughs> right. someone, maybe someone has the discipline to do that, but it, it, it sounds pretty sad. Yeah. And, and then there are some problems with that also, which is like, if you're truly just shuffling your pieces randomly, what pressure are you putting on your opponent that is going to cause them to allow a tactic? And the, the, the metaphor that, that I like right now, is I would compare it to boxing, which is mm. I guess ch- chess boxing sort of had a moment. So <laughs> but imagine you analyze a bunch of boxing matches and you go, okay, well, the deciding moment in all of these matches, like, like, like the moment that caused the knockout was always a haymaker. Like it was always a really <laughs> hard punch. Like I almost never see someone get knocked out with a jab. So right. then you might naively conclude jabs are pointless like i'm gonna i'm gonna advise everyone don't work on your jab don't use your jab because you never knock anybody out with a jab just work on haymakers all the time but um well i'm not an expert on boxing but i'm pretty sure this is wrong like (laughs) yeah like you have to use the jab uh to position yourself to wear your opponent down to create opportunities set up that yeah you can't even though the haymaker decides the match you can't just throw nothing but haymakers all the time. It doesn't work. Like yeah. the opening's not there. And if you come out right. throwing all haymakers, I mean, you're probably the one who's going to get knocked out because you're not going to be defending yourself. Right. Um, it sounds like a drunken barroom brawl yeah. at that point. So that's kind of how I think like positional chess. I think it's kind of, it's like the jab of chess. It's like, this is how you're maneuvering. It's how you're getting small advantage. It's how you're creating opportunities. And, Yes, in the, at the end of the day, the game will probably be decided by a tactic one way or another, but you have to, a, against a tough opponent, you have to create some pressure, you have to create some problems for them, you have to kind of overwhelm or distract them 
to the point where they're going to allow you that opening for the tactic. Right. Yeah. I think those are excellent points, Nate. There's one other element that I'd like to get your opinion on uh, as a reason to study some strategy and positional play, even if, you know, your tactics still need a lot more work. And this was an idea that I was introduced to by Dan Heisman, which is uh, that just there's a human element to all of this in studying chess, which is that it can be hard to approach studying chess like a machine, like a perfectly productive machine. And that to only study tactics, you know, 90 to 100% of the time can kind of wear on a person a bit (laughs) to just do all those endless puzzles. And so, you know, I think strategy and positional play offer uh, maybe a bit of a psychological break from it, uh, different using a different part of our chess brain, so to speak, as well. Um, and some some variety to the experience. So, yeah, I don't know if, if, if you agree with that or not, but I'm just curious to know your your opinion on that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And Dan Heisman, by the way, is one of my favorite coaches. Um, he's got a lot of really great insights. But absolutely, I think we should keep in mind that like, you, me, the, you know, most of your listeners, like we're, we're not chasing the world championship title, right? So we don't necessarily need to be completely optimized in every way to maximize our rating or our results. Um, we should keep in mind that like most of us are doing this for fun, right? So, and, and, and I think that's something that's important to think about. Like for instance, in deciding the next topic you want to study, probably the most common advice sort of like old school, Soviet chess is, is elimination of weaknesses, right? You look at your games, what's your biggest weakness? That's the next thing you study, Mm -hmm. um, which can work, but also how about what is the thing you enjoy the most? What do you want to study the most? What would, what would make you enjoy the chess the most? I think that is at least as valid of a, of a way to decide what to study. So for sure, we should not just try to become machines. It's like, yeah, we're, we're doing this for fun. Um, And by the way, it also, I think if you study what you enjoy and follow your curiosity, um, maybe a bit paradoxically, that's probably going to bring you better competitive results in the long run as well. Because I think that, you know, that's going to be helping you be much more engaged, creative, playful when you're studying. And that's really going to benefit you um, as far as, as what you're able to learn as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it probably in- increases your likelihood of sticking with a study plan. Okay, so now I'd like to kind of shift again and talk about a course that you've already created, which is your new and recent chessable course released in August of this year on the Ready. Let me start with an obvious question. <laughs> uh, why is the Ready a great opening for adult club players? Yeah, my twist the Ready and Ready meaning one knight f3, and then I. I typically go for a setup with G3, Bishop G2 castles, Fionn on the king side. Um, but it really started with looking at the stats, especially on, on Lee Chess. So, you know, for people who don't know, like Lee Chess has this opening database of all the games played on Lee Chess. So like a huge number of games played by like normal people, players of all levels. And looking at those stats is really interesting. So, one thing I had noticed and been interested by is that one knight f3 um, is very rare. It's not played very often, but it, it seems to score quite well. Um, if anything, a little bit better than the more common first moves like e4 and d4. So hmm. I thought that was kind of intriguing. Yeah. Do you, 
I mean, now that you've created the course and done all the work for it, do you have a sense of why that's true? Why would it perform better at that level over E4? Well, I think, I think surprise value is a real thing. Um, E4, especially as you go a little bit lower on the rating, um, rating scale is, is by far the most popular move. Like if you're talking about, um, like, you know, 1200, let's say like E4 is played way more than 50% of games. So what that means is your opponents on the black side are going to have much more experience facing E4. Like I definitely, um, a lot of, a lot of players at the more beginner level, um, hate to face D4. And I don't think it's like a big mystery why it's just because they don't have as much experience playing against it. And the same thing is true even to a much larger extent of one knight F3. Um, that in, in the data, you know, is depending on the level you look for it, like typically being played in less than 5% of games. So you can play E4, which your opponent is seeing in over 50% of games or one knight F3, which they're seeing in less than 5% of the games. But since you're playing one knight F3 in, um, uh, 100% of your white games, you can basically just gift yourself a massive experience advantage in, in like the type of positions you get to. Yeah, this is definitely true. When I'm black and I see one night F3, I definitely feel less confident. And uh, I doubt I'm alone <laughs> in feeling that way amongst other club players. No, this is, this is one of the things I say about the repertoire is like, I there are a lot of players, even like really good players up to master level who have little to no preparation against one night F3. So I don't know. I think, you know, I, I, I used to play poker professionally at all. So I'm kind of bringing that mindset, like as far as not only looking for necessarily the best moves, but like, how can I kind of exploit the metagame? How can I give myself an edge? So the possibility of playing um, a move on move one that completely takes my opponent (laughs) out of their preparation. I mean, that seems like a big opportunity. And then the other big side of it is, there's usually this dynamic in opening preparation where there's a tension between surprising your opponent and playing good moves, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, of course, you want to surprise your opponent to to get that experience advantage and that comfort level advantage. Uh, but presumably, your opponent should be preparing for the best moves. So to surprise them, you have to play a bad move, and that's a trade-off. Um, but I think knight f3 is like... About, like on the merits is just about as good as D4 or E4. Like you can kind of debate it a little bit, but it's like Knight F3 is not a bad move. It's developing Knight. It's controlling the center. It's getting closer to castling Kingside. So this is 100% in accordance with opening principles. There's nothing like sketchy about this move. It's just a good move. Yeah. Great point. Um, so one other element of the course I wanted to discuss uh, a bit with you is that um and I should be maybe more familiar with this with chessable, but it seems like a maybe somewhat newer category for them, which is that it's in the um, 100 repertoires category, uh, which I understand to me, there's only a hundred variations in the course. So, I mean, it's probably, probably pretty evident, but um, it, there's still trade-offs in being under a hundred and over a hundred uh, in variations. So why did you decide to go the route of, of that number? Yeah, well, I, I've always felt that opening courses and, and even going back to opening books, even before Chessable was a thing, but opening resources in general, I think are usually way too long. Mm-hmm. Just way too much, too many variations, way more than most people really need to get started with an opening. So I definitely wanted to do something that was shorter and more manageable and that a normal person who's not a chess professional can actually 
learn the whole thing and use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. So when I started talking to Chessable, that's what I was saying. And they, they said, okay, well, we've got this new series we're doing um, called 100 Repertoires, where it's a full repertoire and 100 lines. So I was like, you know, okay, perfect. Like, perfect fit. Let's do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And I appreciate that. I definitely like course opening courses that have a lot less lines. It's it's very appealing to me. I mean, you know, obviously the lifetime repertoires have their place and they're fantastic for, you know, for, for a broad a broad uh, swath of, of chess players. Um, but I think they can be pretty overwhelming for an adult club player. Yeah. And I think you can, um, there, there's some courses on um, chessable that they're certainly much longer than those. And I think like some of them are really good. You can use them effectively. Um, but what I always recommend to people is only learn the quick starter as far as memorization and just use the rest of the course as reference as needed. Um, so I think they can work that way, but it seems that a lot of people don't know that and are, and are kind of believing that they're expected to learn the whole course cover to cover. And I really <laughs> wouldn't recommend that for most people. Has one night of three been a staple of your own repertoire for many years or, you know, were you looking for something that could be useful this way, something effective in the ways that you talked about and could be presented in it with a shorter number of variations, you know, which, which way did it start for you? Yeah, not really. I've, I've really been more of a D four player for most of my career. Um, so this one night F three thing, it really arose out of this observation about the data and, um, and I really built the repertoire from the ground up to work for, for club players. So it's, you know, it's really not for me. It's for club players, amateurs, adult improvers who are using it. So actually that was, that was one of the reasons I was a bit nervous to just play it in all my games in this tournament is, um, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it was focused more on that kind of intermediate level. Um, you know, the lines are, it's not that the lines are bad. Like these lines are all engine checked. They've been played in grandmaster games. So the lines are good, but they're, they're designed to be effective at a club level. And 100 lines is just um, so much shorter than most opening books and courses. So in, in a way it was like an interesting experiment for me to kind of take this into battle at like a mass, you know, playing against grandmasters, international masters. Um, what is kind of supposed to be, um, not not uh, uh, an adequate level of preparation, I guess, according to to a lot of people. But um, it did, you know, it, it worked well. It worked honestly better than I was expecting. I would say in these four white games, I really got um, good, very good positions in every game. I think um, I would definitely say I I kind of won the opening battle in all four games. So I was really su- a bit surprised, but but like very happy with how it worked. Yeah, that's amazing. Now I don't know how it works at this at this particular tournament and at your level exactly, um, but I know you said there was a surprise. There's a surprise element to one night F three. Did that come into play here, or is it the case that at your level, you know, people are already preparing your against your openings, and so you know, there's less surprise to be had. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't think it would have some as so much surprise value because like you know, I've promoted my, it's like, this course is not a secret. Like I'm tweeting about it. I'm writing <laughs> right. about it. Chessable's promoting it. So anyone who cared to could have just gone and looked at all my preparation. I also, I do have secret online accounts, but even on my main accounts that have my name on them, like I've definitely played games with, with night F3. So 
my opponents mm-hmm. would certainly have known this was coming. Um, but actually, yeah, I think it seemed like no one I played was, was that, um, well prepared. So for example, against, um, uh, uh, Zapata, who's a grandmaster, it went, uh, knight f3, knight f6, g3. And then what I had seen when I looked him up is, is he's often a King's Indian player. And actually I had some really nice targeted prep against this King's Indian that I was really hoping to get because, um, he's actually played, um, he's played quite a bad line against my repertoire several times. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I, I had some prep that would have led to a really nice position, but he thought for a while and actually bailed out and played the old Indian which is kind of a, a sad opening that's known to lead to not a very good <laughs> position for black, but I guess he made a calculation that um, he wanted to do that to at least get um, a, a playable position at a, in the middle game. And then again, in uh, in the fifth round against um, Graham Horobetz, who, who's a, a master. Um, when I looked at, at his games online, he had mostly played knight F3 C5, which is what I assumed he'll play. But um he also went for knight f6 in the King's Indian, but also played quite a sort of timid version of it, which which really surprised me. So I don't know, like, I, I guess people were just, just kind of out of their comfort zone or not prepared and felt like they had to adopt like a, a safety a safety first approach. It really surprised me. I was like, is everyone really this scared of one knight f3? But but like, apparently <laughs> these, these really strong players were kind of feeling not very comfortable. Yeah, well, that just proves your point, right? About the course and that opening. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I mean that, and that's the whole theory of the course. It just, um, I didn't expect it to necessarily work so well against players of this level, but but that's how it worked <laughs> in this tournament. Yeah. So yeah, it's an easy argument to make if it works at that level. Imagine at the club level, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. So, do you think you'll do a black repertoire at some point for Chessable? Yeah. So I've been thinking about. You know, I I'm happy. You know, it seems like the course has been well received. People like it. Um, hopefully some more, more people check it out after, after I kind of, I feel like this is kind of a proof of concept. So hopefully that gets people interested <laughs> in it. Um, they so need I to update like the to copy do, at Chessable. Yeah. I, I, I would <laughs> like to do what, what I'm thinking is to actually make it a trilogy. So what mm-hmm. I want to do is to do two more 100 repertoires for the black pieces. So, so I would do a 100 repertoire for black versus one E4. And uh, finally, a third one for black versus one D4 and everything else. And I think it makes sense to have two for black versus one for white because it's always a bit more challenging and takes a little more work to prepare as black. Because as white, you can wing it a little more and get a playable position. Whereas with black, you do have to know your stuff to avoid getting run over in some cases. Um, And I think especially for club players, black versus one E4 is the biggest thing you have to prepare for because... Like we discussed earlier, one e4 is by far the most common move you face, and it's also a very direct and aggressive move. So you really better know what you're doing there. Um, and then it, it also I, I like to kind of group d4 with with everything else because um, d4, especially d4 knight f3 c4, all tra- transpose between each other very easily, whereas one e4 is really its own beast. Um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. And uh, um, I would definitely, you know, a- apply the same sort of sensibility and approach a- as this ready repertoire for white, which is uh, 
aimed at the club level, um, a little, a little offbeat, um, to take your opponent out of their comfort zone. So, so maybe something that's not the most familiar that your opponents won't be ready for practical, something that scores well in the data. Um, I, I have some ideas about which specific openings would fit the bill for black, but I don't necessarily want to say yet. I haven't, um, I haven't hundred percent decided on that, but that's, and obviously I still need to discuss this with Chessable. So nothing is locked in, but that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking at this point. Yeah. I hope it, I hope it comes to fruition. It sounds like a great plan and that makes a lot of sense the way you described uh, the structure of it all. Yeah. So Nate, we're going to finish our conversation here with a segment that I've been doing now regularly with all my guests, just a, a series of fun, easy, lighthearted questions. To the best of my recollection, I wasn't doing this segment when we recorded our first interview. So that's kind of a good thing because now I get to ask you these questions, which I didn't get to the first time around. So first question for you, what's the most memorable game that you've played? Yeah, so maybe this is recency bias, but but I do have to say that the final round from this tournament that I just played um, versus Dina Bell and Kaya was very memorable just because... Everything can, you know, I, I was going into the round half a point behind. So it was absolutely a must win game. I had the white pieces. So I was getting to use, you know, this chessable repertoire that I'm using that I'm sort of doing this big experiment with. And of course the opponent, um, you know, this incredibly famous and popular and glamorous chess personality, very intimidating. So like, it just all came together to be like a very memorable game. Yeah. I was actually kind of hoping you would say that, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to nudge. <laughs> I didn't want to uh, push you in a particular direction, but I'm, and, I'm happy. And, you said and by that. the way, how, also how the game went, because um, it ended up being, you know, it was a very tough struggle. Like I got a pretty nice position from the opening, but I couldn't, I couldn't really find a way to convert it into a big advantage. So it was like at every phase of the game, I was just trying to find some way to keep the game going, keep a little, you know, keep a little pressure, not let it fizzle out into a draw. And um, like, finally we ended up in this, uh, this root end game where I still was um, just kind of trying to press this little edge and ask a few more questions, um, you know, and it even got down to where we were both, we both just had a few minutes on the clock and, and um, we're playing on the 10 second increment. So it was, very, very tense, very difficult. Somehow the way it worked out, you know, I was even like, I was very tired, but I was just thinking like, okay, brain, give me, give me 10 more minutes of focus. We really need this game. Let's, we got to have this one. Um, and somehow it was in this tournament, like exactly 100% of what I had in the tank was exactly enough to win. Um, Mm -hmm. and it just, it, that was just kind of how it worked out. That's awesome. I love that story. It's a great, it's a great game to, to cite. Um, who is your favorite player of all time? Okay. This is super boring. I, I am just going to go with Carlson though. Like his games are so great. You know, they show so much insight. Um, you know, I think you can learn a lot from them. So it's not, not the most yeah. exciting answer, but I'll, but I'll say Carlson. That's okay. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with that. If you could play a great player of the past who is no longer alive, who would it be? I would go for Paul Morphy because it's just, um, it's really fascinating to me that he was able to get so good at chess 
at a time when really no one had a clue how to play chess. So like, there's a lot of ways you can define greatest player of all time, but if you define it as who had the biggest edge against their contemporaries, um, I think it's gotta be Morphe because he was playing like a grandmaster when everyone else was like 1900. So (laughs) I don't know how that was possible. I don't know how he did that, but that makes him really (laughs) fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent choice. I'm a big fan of uh, Paul Morphy. So this next question, okay, we've had a lot of talk about this, so I think I know the answer, but we'll see. I don't know what you're going to say yet. Favorite opening as white? Yeah, well, so maybe you think I would say they're ready because it's my course. I think I would actually go for um, the Catalan. Um, Because honestly, like, like, obviously, I've I've had good results um, with this one night F3 stuff. And I mean, I think it's good. I think it can work. I think for me... If, if you're going to have one opening that you just go to the well again and again, the Catalan is such a great opening because it's so solid, but it puts so much pressure on your opponent. It's very hard to neutralize. It's from my perspective for the black side it is by far the most annoying opening to prepare against because it's just, hmm. it, 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 it's hard to completely neutralize. And at the same time, it's hard to generate any chances against. So it's just a really great opening. Nice. Nice. Well, I like, I like the, uh, Maybe slightly unexpected answer. That's good. Um, favorite opening is black. Yeah, this is a tough one for me because, like, honestly, I don't have an opening as black that I am super happy to see on the board. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I feel fine that. with my black repertoire right now, but nothing where, like, when it's on the board, I'm like, boom, like, we're winning this game. Uh, <laughs> All right. Maybe I'll even do a bit of a throwback and say the dragon, which which I have not played in a, in a long time, but I definitely have a lot of fond memory. That was my opening as a kid, and I you know I have some nice wins. It is in this day and age, it's a very risky opening to play, but uh, I have a lot of good memories of that. Yeah, yeah, and I know that you have a career that is in chess right now, but nonetheless, I'm going to ask you this question anyway. Uh, if you uh, have to choose a career other than chess, what would it be? Yeah, well, seriously, I I have worked um, as a data scientist. These days I'm actually doing, well, like chess slash being a dad full time. Um, (laughs) Not currently employed as a data scientist, but, you know, doing chess coaching, I'm doing um, my newsletter, Twitter, all that. Um, But if I had to choose another career, I would say um, I I would love to be an R&D chef. So certain um, like fancy restaurants have like a second kitchen that's just for R&D and they've got some guy in there just like testing recipes all day and I really so I really love to cook like I cook for my family pretty much every day I have I I did briefly work um as a line cook after college I pretty much sucked at that that's a totally different thing it's really not about creativity <laughs> or experimentation it's like it's almost yeah. more like being an athlete it's like very physically demanding and you just have to do the same thing over and over very quickly and ideally with a lot of precision. Um, so I was not good at that, but I think it would be really fun for me to be like in a kitchen all day, like testing things out, taking notes. It's actually, maybe it's a bit like preparing openings, you know, you're kind of in the lab and that's, that's fun for me. Yeah. I like that. Um, I didn't know if there was going to necessarily be another career, but I like hearing that because I didn't know about that side of you. I didn't know that that was one of your interests. So that's really cool to learn about that. 
And it explains a little bit to me your enthusiasm for the bear, which you referenced to me once in a tweet that you were into that show. So now I understand even more your enthusiasm for that show. Oh, yeah. I still I'm actually not caught up on season two, though. Um, I'm only like two episodes in. Well, that's that's. A hundred percent more than me because I have yet to start it, but <laughs> but uh, but uh, I hear a lot of good things, so it's definitely on my list of things to watch. Um, but that's very cool that you're into um, into the culinary arts, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's yeah. probably I don't know my biggest hobby outside of chess, I guess. Very cool, very cool. Well, I always like learning about that on the show with my guests, so that's I um, I'm excited that you shared that. Uh, well, Nate, those are. Uh, Everything that I wanted to ask in a what feels always like a short amount of time. I have a hundred other questions I want to ask for you, but uh, as usual with my guests, but uh, but we'll leave it there for now. And um, you know, I, I really enjoyed my conversation with you, Nate, and I think you have a lot of great wisdom uh, to offer uh, in general and in this episode. And just excited to have you back, and uh, I hope to have you back again in the future. So thanks for being on the show. All right, absolutely, thank you, Daniel. Always always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.